Uh, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to discuss, present this uh, book here today, uh, although it's not, uh, I mean, it's been around for a while, almost a year and a half, so I guess many of you read it, uh, and which is, uh, which kind of presented me with a more difficult question of how exactly to, to pitch this talk here. Uh, uh, so first of all, I will try not to go on for too long so that if people who have read the book and have some comments or questions have, can have the opportunity to, uh, to present them. Uh, but then I guess I will simply focus on some stuff which is uh, perhaps related also to the venue, uh, Freud and what I consider to be, is this coming from me? His uh, really um, great um, revolutionary insight or uh, revolution in regarding to the, concept, the very concept of sexuality. So I will try to yeah, emphasize, point out certain points and perhaps add some uh, new reflections and arguments. Uh, so perhaps I can start with the, the title, this, what is sex, which uh, of course is not meant as a question to which the book would be an answer. Uh, it is not so much a question even as it is a kind of claim, uh, going in the sense that uh, we usually talk about or invoke sex as if we knew exactly what we are talking about, yet I don't think we do know. And uh, the book is kind of rather an answer to the question of why is this so about this kind of enigma. Uh, so one of the fundamental claims which is already there in Freud and that I take as a starting point is that actually uh, there is something about sexuality which is uh, inherently kind of problematic, impossible, um, implying a certain contradiction and it's not such simply because of external obstacles, prohibitions, kind of a suppression performed on sexuality. And, and I think that what we have been witnessing in the past, I don't know, half a century, perhaps even more, has been a kind of uh, systematic obliteration or effacement or repression even uh, of this negativity, of this kind of uh, negative core of sexuality, inherent to sexuality, and not simply any kind of repression of, uh, of sexuality, at least like uh, in our Western world. So I think sexuality has been and still is kind of systematically reduced and I literally mean reduced to a kind of a self-evident phenomenon consisting simply of some positive features and problematic only because caught in the standard ideological warfare, shall we kind of liberally show it all, admit everything or kind of conservatively hide and prohibit uh, most of it or many things and so on. But show or prohibit what exactly? What is this it that we are trying to regulate when we regulate sexuality? And actually my answer to this is precisely that it is not simply something that is there on display in the sexuality, but precisely something that is not there and that, that constitutes this kind of uh, intrinsic dialectics and difficulty of sexuality. It is rather this that we are trying to conceal or regulate in different ways. Um, so this is what the title tries to ask. So what is this sex that we are talking about? Is it really there anywhere as a simply positive entity to be regulated in this or that way? No, it is not. And uh, this is precisely to some extent why we are 
kind of obsessed with it in one way or another, even when we want to get rid of it altogether. Uh, so in this sense, uh, perhaps the most simplest way of putting it would be that Freud did not simply discover sexuality or its importance, he discovered its problem, its kind of negative core, and the role of this core in the precisely this kind of proliferation of the sexual. Uh, so the questioning is not what kind of being is sex or sexuality, but uh, is pointed in a different direction. Um, claiming that sex is neither simply being, uh, nor a quality or a coloring of being, uh, but a kind of paradoxical entity that actually defines ontology in the way as it is traditionally conceptualized as this kind of thought of being qua being, pure being. Uh, it defies it without falling outside of ontological interrogation because I think the kind of being or non-being that it is has precisely consequences for any serious ontological interrogation. So we could perhaps put it like this. Sex is something that takes place or emerges, appears at the very point of a certain impossibility or contradiction of uh, uh, being or being. So the question is not what is sex, but rather what is sex. But of course the two are not unrelated, and this is probably the kind of most uh, daring philosophical proposition of the book, namely that uh, sexuality is constitutes a kind of a point of short circuit between ontology and epistemology. That a certain kind of knowledge is transmitted there that kind of flips uh, directly into uh, to, to being, to ontology. Tells us something about it. Uh, we could say, in a kind of, uh, if there is a limit to what, for instance, I can know, uh, what is the status of this limit? Does it tell me something about simply only something about my subjective limitations, on account of which I can never fully grasp being such as it is in itself? Or is there a constellation in which this not knowing possibly tells us something about being itself, its own contradiction? So this would be one simple way of putting it. And I think there is and the, the constellation that Freud conceptualized, uh, this is the constellation precisely that Freud conceptualized under the name of the unconscious. The unconscious is a form of knowledge. So we could say that there are let's say, two ways of not knowing. Uh, there is a simple way, which we don't know, don't know something, we are not aware of something, and then there is a way that actually involves a singular kind of knowledge. There is a simple not knowing something, and there is another form, that of once described or formulated by, by Slavoj Žižek as not knowing that we know. You know, he kind of uh, funnily deduces this from the way in which um, this famous saying by uh, Donald Rumsfeld uh, was uh, presented when he said that, okay, like in terms of warfare and defense and so on, that of course there are known knowns, things that we know that we know, and then there are things that we know that we don't know, and then there is this new category that he introduces, there are things that we don't know that we don't know them, which are the most tricky ones, and that's it, so basically, and to this 
Slava added this fourth category, knowing, uh, not knowing that we know, which uh, is really a very good formula of the unconscious, uh, because it points to the fact that it doesn't, unconscious doesn't simply imply that we are not aware, not conscious of something, and then say in analysis, uh, we become conscious of it, or gain access to this particular knowledge. Now, the crucial dimension of, of knowledge at stake in the concept of the unconscious uh, is not simply this content-related knowledge, but the form itself that transmits knowledge, the knowledge of repression, precisely, and of the ways in which uh, uh, repression in the Freudian sense of Dringung works. So it is above all the knowledge that, uh, let's say, repression took place, and it's kind of something to be counted with, and not simply the knowledge about what has been uh, repressed. So some, when something is repressed, it is not enough to say that we are not conscious of it. The right way of putting it would be to say that we are precisely unconscious of it. This would be my way of saying that, uh, uh, that we not know that we know. So the unconscious in its very form is this positive way in which a certain negativity of a given reality, this cut in it, uh, register in this reality itself, from which it is kind of uh, erased. And it registers in a way in which, the, which does not rely on the simple opposition, precisely, between knowing and not knowing, between being or not being aware of something. Uh, and the reason that uh, what is at stake, um, and, this, and the reason is that what is at stake is precisely that this is not something, some fact that we could be aware of or not, but this kind of negativity, repression that is perceptible only through its own negation and its consequences and its returns, of course. So there is a crack in the content which also transmits some knowledge. It registers as a peculiar form of knowledge, precisely the, the unconscious. And now, in related to this, sexuality, for Freud, I think it's not simply the content of the unconscious, uh, uh, understood as this kind of container of repressed thought. The relationship between sex and unconscious is not uh, that between some also not that between some primary raw being and repression and other operations performed on this being, uh, unconscious is a thought process. It is a work, it is activity, and it is clearly sexualized from within this work, so to say. So the unconscious is not sexual simply because of, I don't know, some dirty thoughts it may contain or hide, but because of the way it works. And if I keep emphasizing that I'm interested in the psychoanalytic concept of sexuality rather than in any kind of sexual practices directly, uh, it, is, uh, it is precisely because I think uh, the fundamental link between sexuality and the unconscious discovered by Freud is the crucial thing. So how, how these things uh, work together and precisely not simply in the form of a container and what is contained there. So unconscious, I keep returning to this, is the key concept here, and I think uh, if I make a kind of digression, that precisely this point 
was kind of stunningly missed by Foucault. Uh, for example, you know, his major thesis uh, is that sexuality has a history. It is something that occurs, that gets invented at a certain point in history, and it's not some ahistoric phenomenon or being that one could investigate separately. So obviously one can agree with this, I mean I agree with this, uh, as one can agree with many things in his uh, history of sexuality. Yes, sex is not simply some being who a being. Uh, and further on, as you know, what he uh, suggests in the history of sexuality is that uh, going against what was very fashionable Freudo-Marxist uh, atmosphere in France at the time when he was writing the book, this called what Lacan also called sexo-Marxism, uh, uh, against this uh, repressive, so-called repressive hypothesis that sexuality has been oppressed by all these uh, conservative structures and should be liberated. And repressive here means, uh, the way Foucault uses the, the word is not at all in the uh, Freudian sense of verdrängung, but as uh, suppression, let's say. So uh, he emphasized that, that this uh, so-called suppression of sexuality was actually a key part of its invention and the very source of its proliferation. So he goes completely against this repressive hypothesis. Um, and for him, part of this invention and uh, discursive implementation of sexuality, as he calls it, um, and psychoanalysis for him is part of this, has been to institute sexuality as the ultimate secret that has to be talked about and revealed. For him, this was the kind of a major biopolitical maneuver today. So sexuality had been made the locus of truth and the ultimate object of knowledge, sustained by its very secrecy. So for instance, Foucault writes, what is peculiar in modern societies, in fact, is not that they consigned sex to a shadow existence, but that they dedicated themselves to speaking of it at infinitum, while exploiting it as the secret of this kind of a double. Or, another short quote, we became dedicated to the endless task of forcing its secret of sexuality, of extracting the truest of confessions from the shadow. So, um, one can absolutely agree that there is this kind of double move uh, involved here, but what I think is nevertheless wrong or problematic in this account is the following. Namely, this double move is not simply a discursive maneuver performed on sexuality, but is in a way sexuality itself. Uh, in other words, I would say that Foucault himself is not Foucauldian enough here. Sex is not some, precisely not some pre-existing being which has been put into discourse and forced to speak at a certain historical point, but is this very paradoxical double move of the discourse uh, as such. Um, so, in other words, sex and discursivity go together, and for a very precise reason. Uh, it is that sex is not a pre-discursive object, but is precisely the inherent contradiction of discourse. So history of sexuality, we could say, perhaps exists in a similar way, in a similar sense, that the history of logic exists. 
and this is perhaps one of the reasons why you know the way Lacan approaches sexuality is basically through all these formulas. Um, uh, his, why I'm uh, making this parallel? Because history of logic is actually a history of solutions or answers to contradictions and impossibilities involved in previous formalization of discursive laws. It's always every time the logical advance happens, it is by resolving a certain impasse, a certain difficulty that was there in the previous way of formalization. Um, so in a similar way and in this sense, not only the sexual not exist outside of the discourse, but also discourse that not simply exist outside of the sexual, that is outside of its own inherent uh, contradiction. Or put it in another way, discourse is in itself a split contradictory entity and is not homogeneous and it's not simply about power, this overwhelming power. It is about also structural impotence, about blind spots and contradictions. And their relation to or involvement, yes, in power. And this was, I think, uh, Freudian notion of the unconscious uh, is all about. Uh, which precisely, you know, and I'm coming to this point that I started out with what is the problem with Foucault or symptom, which is why I find it deeply symptomatic that in that the concept of the unconscious is not mentioned one single time in the entire first book, first volume of the history of sexuality. Even though psychoanalysis is one of its principal protagonists. So Foucault speaks about the secret and stuff like this, but the term refoulement, which would be the end of repression, of course, like uh, repression, but refoulement is not at all a concept that he at any point discusses, and I don't think this is coincidental. Because sexuality actually enters the Freudian perspective, strictly speaking, only so far as it is, um, uh, as, as it exists in this compound with the uh, unconscious. Uh, but again, unconscious sexuality does not simply mean that we are not aware of it, but constitutes kind of hidden truth of most of our actions, or that it is a kind of ultimate secret. This way, I think, to understand the concept in this way is completely missed what is the, the novelty of it. Uh, this kind of unconscious was there before Freud. One wouldn't need to Freud to, 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 to define it like this. So unconscious does not mean the opposite of conscious. It refers to an acting, an ongoing process, work, censorship, substitution, condensation, all these things. And this work is, in a way, itself sexual. It is intrinsic to sexuality, to desire, rather than simply performed in relationship to it. So, um, but perhaps uh, I should add something here. Uh, by saying this, I'm not making an argument uh, against Foucault in the sense that as opposed to these uh, historical shifts that he detects, we should think of sexuality as this, this contradiction of discourse and hence as something internal, just something that uh, as if, if it's like this, then there are no historical shifts. I think they are. Uh, and I definitely agree and subscribe to this sensitivity that Foucault said, uh, have about uh, 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 discovering, pointing to these historical shifts uh, like of, of modernity and so on uh, that he kept writing about. Uh, but the question is, 
what actually happened here? Is it really that sexuality has been put into discourse or something else happened? And I think, to, to put it very briefly, I think that what happened uh, is precisely that with the um, uh, invention or the entering on the scene of the modern science, uh, a certain shift happened in the discursivity as such. Discursivity started to function only then, I think, in this sense that we understand it today. Um, and part of this was precisely something that one could describe as desexualization of the universe. Uh, because up to the, let's say, scientific revolution, which introduced these strange, meaningless formulas with which to uh, account for the, for, for, for the universe, for the physics, and so on, actually, uh, the universe was completely sexualized in the sense of this more or less uh, uh, binary ontology uh, of uh, um, whatever passive matter and uh, active ma passive matter and active form or whatever, or else uh, the mo even the movements of the planet, the, the astronomy, and so on. All these things uh, were were made uh, made sense of precisely by referring to some kind of a uh, uh, ordinated sexual logic. So what uh, what happens uh, here with the advent of modern science is precisely a certain kind of desexualization of the of the universe. There was this shift, but th this shift was, I think, really before the, the the discursive practice as such, which did which did change. And I will uh, perhaps briefly come to this uh, again later on, but. Uh, so, um, there is definitely something that happens with sexuality in the modern world, but not uh, simply in this uh, sense that, uh, that Foucault described. But I really think that this kind of double move is the way in which discursivity as such started to function. Okay, so um, what uh, another um, thing that is related to, to this claim, to this short circuit between ontology and epistemology, uh, is that uh, the way uh, Lacan conceptualizes the Freudian unconscious uh, has important consequences also for what he calls the signifying or symbolic order or the discursive order and of being as uh, order of being. It has important consequences for this and not only for our understanding of the unconscious. Uh, okay, you, you all know this famous uh, thesis, the unconscious is structured like speech. Uh, usually this is taken to, see, taken to simply imply a move in one direction only. It tells us something about the unconscious. It tells us that the unconscious is not simply about the deep insight of our most intimate inner thoughts, repressed feelings and desires, but kind of literally comes from the outside. It relates directly to the structure of language, of speech, of social structures involved in them. So this was a kind of a first revolution of the Freudian unconscious that is precisely made impossible this divide between inside and outside, the in most intimate and the, 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 the external or the private and the individual and the social, but kind of pointed to the fact that it is all out. 
But then if the unconscious, unconscious comes from the outside, and if it is essentially invasive, as uh, Laplanche put it, and not generated simply from within ourselves, what does this imply? If the unconscious does not start with the first thing we repress, that means that there is a dimension of repression, Verdrängung, already built into the signifying order or into the discourse as such. And this is precisely how Lacan reads the Freudian notion of primal repression, you know, this hypothesis that Freud introduces at some point, this Urverdrängung, uh, kind of, um, which he discusses as a kind of a ground, uh, even attraction point, not simply some repression is not simply about getting rid of something, but also like attracting certain things, certain repressions. So this Urverdrängung, um, which is not, uh, which makes all other normal repressions already uh, nachverdrängungen. So we could say language or discourse is structured like a repression in a way, and struggles with its own inherent difficulty, impossibility. And I think this is precisely what Lacan means when he says that these suppressive structures like family, society, and so on, do not simply impose or demand repression, but are themselves formations built from repression. I think this is a very invaluable lesson for any kind of critical uh, theory. There, there are these formations that are, yeah, formations of power, but they keep struggling with their own point of inconsistency, their they own point of, of leakage, their own point of uh, repression, precisely. And this is precisely what I think makes uh, um, this particular uh, concept of the unconscious also very important for any kind of uh, social theory. Okay, so usually when we speak about the signifying or discursive order, we imply that this is a space determined by the signifiers, its logic, and symbolic rules. Uh, I want to suggest something more, namely that the rule of the signifier itself is overdetermined by something. So this something is not something external to it, but it's a kind of like a missing element of its own reality. A missing element, a minus one, as also Lacan put it, that determines the very structuring and appearance of uh, this reality. Or to put it more simply, the discursive order is not neutral because it is constantly struggling with its own limit, its own point of contradiction. Uh, and sex, in the concept of sexuality in psychoanalysis, has to do with this precisely. So one way of putting it, which is a kind of paradoxical, but it is a way of putting it, would be to say that the signifying order emerges as already lacking one signifier. It appears with a lack of a signifier kind of built into it. We have a signifier which, if existed, would be this kind of a binary signifier, which would... Uh, but now, instead of this kind of complementarity of like binary signifiers, we have an incomplete chain representing famously a subject for another signifier and not this thing for the subject. So there is this uh, 
precisely this, it is here that this kind of uh, something uh, falling off can be perceived or said in this way. Um, so in, in this precise sense, uh, I think the signifier order could be said to begin with, not with one, the first signifier, or with, or with multiplicity, but precisely with a minus one, that you can have this kind of image that you can have some kind of a full battery of signifiers, but it is the moment that something drops off that they start to run, and that you get this kind of logic. Um, Okay, there is also this uh, joke that uh, I use and many used it also, so which is kind of when I speak about this uh, lack, which nevertheless is determinable for what appears around it, uh, this uh, uh, famous joke from Lubitsch's movie Ninochka, you know, when somebody orders, can I please have uh, coffee without cream? And then the waiter says, sorry, sir, but we are out of cream. Can it be without milk? So, you know, it's a very well-used joke, but it's precisely to, to um, it kind of uh, alerts us to this possible role that the, the, the very thing that is not there can have for the taste of what is there around it. Um, so, okay, so the, there is this structural minus. Uh, and here enters uh, what is probably a kind of a key point that um, I'm making, namely that topologically, it is in the place of this gap, of this negativity, that appears what we call the surplus enjoyment, or a surplus, which then stains the signifying structure by sticking to some signifiers around it and not others. Um, so, and it also kind of uh, stains its purity, like this is something that it's not there in the kind of classical structuralist account of the, the whatever symbolic order signifiers, which are pure structure, structure of pure differences or something like this. But here, I think there, there is a way in which this uh, unpure element, this stain is being accounted for from within uh, the very purity of the structure, and not as something that comes from, from somewhere else. So the, the heterogeneous element pertaining to the signifying structure, yet irreducible to it, this uh, uh, surplus enjoyment emerges here. Not to compensate this, but perhaps we could say to further complicate things. Not only we do not get this kind of a complementary binary signifier, on top of not getting it, we get this heterogeneous things we think which kind of introduces uh, um, new logic or kind of uh, traverses the, this pure signifying logic. Um, and this implies a relation or even complicity precisely between uh, this pure signifying negativity and this what looks like this pure surplus multiplicity of drives and so on. The unbound positivity only exists as circulating around this negativity that constitutes it. This, at least, I think it's, this is my way of reading the, what is drive. And you know that there is, uh, for instance, very long objection uh, coming from a Deleuzean background, uh, from those working uh, from a Deleuzean background, objection to psychoanalysis, uh, which in its rudimentary form, goes like this. Psychoanalytic theory is all about lack, castration, minus, negativity, 
but it lacks precisely a concept of pure positivity, of pure affirmation, of excessiveness, of surplus. And I think that it is not enough to respond to this that, uh, okay, nevertheless, psychoanalysis also uh, deals with and speaks of excess and of surplus all the time. It has even invented the, the concept of this surplus as object, you know, this famous object, all a small a, uh, as it's called in Lacan. Uh, I think one should further stress that the whole point of uh, psychoanalysis is precisely that one has to recognize the inherent place of negativity in the very emerging of this excessive positive positivity, precisely as something autonomous, uh, possibly self-standing. And by the way, I mean, if there are some people here interested in Deleuze, I think Deleuze, this work here is much more ambiguous than is presented in some of his followers, and he actually clearly recognizes this, what I'm saying, uh, both in logic of sense and difference and repetition, when he speaks about dead drive in Freud and about what he calls the crack. Um, uh, and I will just read you one very short uh, quote, which I think it's amazing, and I think it uh, renders precisely the, the kind of... Uh, picture that I'm working with within the Lacanian perspective, he says, the crack designates and this emptiness is the dead instinct. Okay, here instinct, it's a drive, the dead drive. The drives may speak loud, make noise or swarm, but they are unable to cover up this more profound silence or hide that from which they come forth and to which they return. The dead drive not merely one drive among others, but the crack itself around which all the drives congregate. Okay, it's a bit uh, uh, difficult quote, but uh, I think you can get the, the, the image is precisely that this negativity, which it's called also in Freud the dead drive, is not something one drive of among others, like one drive which drives us to death, and then there are there is something that the, the, the very logic of the drives in the very positivity of their satisfaction drives always get their satisfaction. They get it without repression. Furthermore, um, the, the the very capacity of this is uh, a part of the way in which they uh, work by circling around a certain a certain void, making something literally ex nihilo out of this void. So, uh, okay, this is just to say that uh, even this opposition between pure positivity and pure negativity is um, much more complicated, not only in Lacan, but also, I think, in, in Deleuze. But the point that I would like to make is that uh, sexuality, or the concept of sexuality, is precisely this link between this kind of positive satisfaction and the discursive signifying minus that gives its form, let's say, like, put it like this, to the unconscious. So sexuality is structurally implied in the unconscious because the gap constituted by the later constitutes the backbone, so to say, of, of the drive of en enjoyment. It's not, they are not simply uh, from two separate worlds. And I think this is this is why it's really important to uh, to, to grasp or to to see that the, the, this radical heterogeneity, which is clearly there, 
incommensurability between the signifying order and enjoyment is not due to their heterogeneous origin, for example, that one would come from the body and the other from the symbolic order or something like this, but it's due, on the contrary, to the fact that they originate at the same place. The other is both the locus of the signifiers and the locus of enjoyment. Mine as well as that of the other. So there is precisely this um, uh, coincidence, which I think is quite crucial in the sexuality, the, the, the concept of the sexual is precisely what articulates them uh, together. So we, to repeat, the emergence of the signifying order kind of directly coincides with the non-emergence of one signifier, and this fact, this original minus one, leaves its trace in a particular feature or disturbance of this signifying system, which is precisely the enjoyment, which kind of gets uh, attached to it, which sticks to it, even when we, we don't want it at all, it's kind of smuggled in, uh, emerges. And in this sense, the way that enjoyment relates to or is linked to the signifying order, as you can see here, passes through what is kind of missing in this order. It does not relate to it directly, but precisely via this uh, constitutive negativity. So, and this negativity is the real of the junction between the, the, the missing signifier and enjoyment. And again, the conceptual name of this configuration in psychoanalysis is sexuality or the sexual. And this is why it is related, Lacan speaks of it also as the real, not the real in some sense of some ultimate reality or ultimate truth, truth of something, but precisely as this inherent, um, yeah, difficulty. Incommensurability as uh, yet coincidence. Uh, so sexuality is coextensive with the effect that we could say of the signifying gap at the place of which surplus enjoyment emerges on the rest of the signifying chain, including, obviously, bodily erogenous zones, which are certainly not independent of the signifying grid. Uh, but still, it's not the same thing. So we could say sexuality is not some being that exists beyond the symbolic. It exists solely as the contradiction of the symbolic space that appears because of the constitutively missing signifier and of uh, and other further repressions it attracts and of what appears at its place, this kind of enjoyment. This is what the, 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 the compound that we call sexuality is basically uh, about. Okay, so I will now try to move a little bit to, in a yeah, more... Um, um, perhaps, act, uh, waters of actuality. Mm. I just introduced the, this notion of the real in Lacan, which of course is quite crucial. Uh, it is crucial because it is not about reality, it is not about being, not being in Lacan. He precisely wants to distinguish between being and the real. So the real is not a being or a substance, it refers to a deadlock. Uh, the point of impossibility of the discursive structure. This is what he calls the real. It's this point that the structure struggles with that, and that I mentioned before. 
it indicates a real difficulty, precisely, that uh, uh, structures uh, tackle. It is inseparable from them, it is inseparable from being, yet it is not simply being. Uh, it exists as this uh, contradiction, and this is why also what is at stake, what is at stake when psychoanalysis links sex to the real. Um, we could perhaps say that there is nothing beautiful or sublime or authentic about the real. Nothing gets revealed with the real. The real is the place, I, I would even put it like this, of systemic violence that kind of exists and repeats itself often in the form precisely of this excess, unbound excess or surplus. So the emphasis on the concept of the real as well as the imperative that we must formalize it, are not Lacan's ways of celebrating it, in this sense of celebrating whatever, but they are means of uh, locating and formulating the problems of the discursive structure. This is why we have to look at, at it. So, and relating this notion of the real to that of, of systemic violence, uh, I think also brings as now to this more uh, topical question that seems uh, yeah, very much in the forefront today, namely the relationship between sex and violence. So the, the predominant ways or terms in which we discuss sexuality today publicly seems to be abuse, harassment, gender trouble, and so on. And this is kind of interesting in itself. Uh, and I think there are two uh, two facets to this. Uh, one is that um, there is clearly a certain kind of warfare going on against the, we could put it like this, the dimension of enjoyment and of desire uh, as such, attempts at their regulation, at prescription of things that we have to do not to introduce this, uh, this kind of purification which clearly have to do uh, with this fact that uh, both enjoyment and desire involve a certain trespassing. I mean, there is the moment you have this element, uh, the, 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 the uh, distinguishing, the delimiting line between myself and the other uh, is kind of blurred. It's a, it, there is a moment, uh, element of trespassing every time a certain enjoyment uh, appears, or even the other way around. The, 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 the very moment we feel that something, uh, uh, this kind of trespassion, uh, trespassing took place, we interpret it as enjoyment of the other. I mean, a clear example is that of a passive smoking, for instance. It's, it's kind of, you cannot, I mean, the moment somebody smokes, the, the, the smoke gets to you and he or she is enjoying on your account. It is very impossible to draw the delimitation between the two. And it's similar with, with the desire and so on. Uh, and so the, the, there, there is this social hostility to any kind of uh, manifestation of this phenomena which clearly involves this uh, dissolution of the clear limits between when my space begins and that of the other, uh, ends and then the other begins. Um, and there is this attempt that uh, if we, uh, or this idea that if we simply remove at least from the public scene, all these stains of enjoyment and desire and so on, uh, uh, we will simply, I mean, be, uh, 
The problem with this is that if we just remove them from the public side, we do absolutely nothing to their existence. This doesn't solve anything. It's just that uh, constitutes a certain kind of uh, discontent in civilization that already Freud was talking about, and it doesn't solve any problems. But okay, this is one thing that I will actually more address more in detail, perhaps tomorrow in this comedy talk. Uh, what I want uh, to say today, and conclude with this, is more than there is... Um, so, if we discuss today sexuality in terms of this uh, violence, abuse, harassment, and so on, this is uh, interesting, obviously, in itself. But the question also arises and uh, was formulated recently by, by Jean-Claude Milner, uh, of the, let's put it like this, of kind of ontological status of this uh, violence. That is to say, is it simply that social inequality and uh, violence, different facets of power, kind of express or manifest themselves also in sexuality as abuse, harassment, other forms of violence. So, in other words, is sexuality simply an important field or playground in which this uh, external or more fundamental difference, contradictions and violences are, are uh, being played out? Um, or is it that Sexuality is in itself kind of intrinsically by some kind of division, asymmetry, inequality, contradiction. Of course, sexuality can be the playground uh, on which all kinds of social inequality. But I definitely think that this is not all and that the story does not end there. That sex implies certain antagonism, certain asymmetry of its own. Um, and it seems, I mean, there have been some uh, statistical reports about this, that the result is that more and more young people seek ways to turn away from sexuality, to kind of deflate its importance, to say this is not our thing, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, here I'm not so sure that it can be done so easily, that one can, of course, decide, or something decides for you to have sex less often or not to have it at all, uh, have this kind of games of seduction, but this does not, I think, put you outside of its realm in this more specific and at the same time general way of sexuality that I was uh, describing. Uh, why is this? Precisely because sexuality is not simply a realm, a playground where different social structures and antagonisms are being played out. Uh, it rather really coincides with the discursive contradiction or uh, or impasse. And I use the term social and discursive here in a kind of synonymous way uh, because of this Lacanian definition of the discourse as social tie, social bond. So the discourse is not simply manner of speaking. It is uh, constitutive of a certain social tie. So th this point actually about sex being this contradiction and not simply uh, something else was uh, very nicely formulated some quite some time ago already by John Kopjek. Uh, and I will read you a, a quote from her book, um, Read My Desire. Uh, and she says, When we speak of language's failure with respect to sex, we speak not of its falling short of a pre-discursive object, 
but of it falling into contradiction with itself. So language falling into contradiction with itself. Sex coincides with this failure, this inevitable contradiction. Sex is then the impossibility of completing meaning, not as Butler's historicist, the constructionalist argument would have it, a meaning that is incomplete, unstable. So this would be the, the difference. Or the end of the quote, the point is that sex is the structural incompleteness of language, not that sex is itself incomplete. Okay, it's a kind of a, perhaps a, uh, differently sounding argument, but I think based on what I've said so far, um, you can grasp the, 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 the gist of it. So, but I would add here that this failure of language, of discourse, and so on, uh, is not visible in the discursive space directly as failure or lack. It can only be deduced as such precisely from the positive logic of its functioning, from the concrete forms of, and contradictions, from surplus investments, effects, enjoyments that take place in it and that are kind of discernible. And this is what I call also a curving of the social space uh, by this surplus enjoyment being attached to certain uh, ways or certain parts of the signifying chain. So this space is not simply neutral, it is biased, but it is also, I think it's an important point, not simply in a subjective way. It is biased in an objective or systemic way, okay, by this kind of uh, minus or primal repression that on which it is based, uh, and which affects the flow of investment circulating around it and sticking to associated content. So as subjects and as their, sim their symptoms, their ways of enjoyment, Subjects are always also a response to this systemic torsion or violence, I claim. The point is not only, uh, they point these symptoms not only to subjective problems, which they also point to, but they also point to objective or systemic contradictions of the given social uh, context. I think this is very, I mean, this is also why I, I will come to this. Uh, uh, psychoanalysis was kind of discovered by Freud in a certain uh, more historical point. Uh, so if we say that sex itself is ridden by division, inequality, antagonism, this is perhaps not the best way of putting it, because it flips something sim similar to sex being incomplete instead of being the very incompleteness of the structure of language. But at the same time, it is also somehow true that sex is ridden by contradiction. So why, how, how to kind of put these two things together? Why is this so? Uh, because, and again, I think this incompleteness of language does not manifest itself simply as absence, as, but again, as a certain too muchness, uh, or as a form, or the capacity of language and speech to be the source and locus of enjoyment, not simply of signifying some false or true meaning and so on. It is definitely something that perpetuates and um, is the locus of enjoyment. As I said before, always trespassing the boundary precisely be between myself and the other. So in this sense, 
Sex is obviously not only a negativity of language, its failure and so on, but it exists, it also exists as this kind of substance of enjoyment that irreducibly pertains to it, gets added to it, but should not be separated from it. And I think if we separate the two, this negativity and this positivity, we, we, we lose the way of actually tackling with the source of this kind of systemic violence. So it is a concept that warns us against separating simply the two things. It prevents us from losing sight of this inherent con connection of the two dimensions. dimensions. Um, so the inherently problematic character of sexuality that I started with doesn't simply mean that it fails to work or to produce a certain amount of satisfaction. It can even produce a lot of satisfaction. It rather means that this surplus satisfaction itself can be the very existence and repetition of this failure, of the structure, repetition of also systemic violence or, if you want, repression. In other terms, and perhaps paradoxically, it is usually the satisfaction rather than dissatisfaction or disappointment that tends to repeat this systemic violence and requires it. Um, and for a subject, this can be deeply disturbing. Uh, and I think hysterical desire directed precisely against satisfaction or constantly putting it in question is there to point this out. Uh, and it is uh, no coincidence that the birth of psychoanalysis was a kind of birth out of the spirit of hysterical questioning and of this refusal precisely of satisfaction in some so, to repeat, intrinsic inconsistency of sexuality as inconsistency of the discursive order doesn't rhyme with non-satisfaction. It rather rhymes with this kind of a surplus satisfaction with the fact that it is difficult, even impossible, to escape some form of satisfaction, which is finally true also for the hysterics. So the refusal or incapacity to enjoy can be a kind of unconscious objection of consciousness, if one can put it like this, uh, a kind of protest against precisely a certain systemic violence at work, not simply in sexuality, but in all kinds of social uh, formations. And this sexual content that I was talking about, it's not uh, simply uh, about uh, necessarily about sexuality in this narrow sense of the word, but precisely points to the very fact where this, uh, why sexuality can be a kind of very um, um, sensitive point when it comes to detecting this more, much more general uh, level of uh, repression and uh, problematic uh, repetition of this problematic violence in, in the social space. Okay, I think I will end here. Uh, uh, I don't have the clock. Uh, is it one hour? Or, or, uh, I mean, I have some, but I, I Perhaps we should keep some time for questions. What, what is the time? I mean, I have, uh, in conclusion, I wanted to do something a little bit more, uh, I mean, not really controversial, but uh, I have this thing uh, that I recently written on the question of uh, the phallus and the phallic signifier, uh, the way how it is uh, obviously not a very uh, um, popular 
figure of, uh, of Lacanian theory, but also of the way in which I think the, uh, uh, often the psychoanalytic response to this is much too weak. When one simply uh, take it at this takes it at this level, saying, "Okay, but if we use the term phallus and phallic signifier, but, uh, if it sorry, this, I can." <laughs> This, yeah. So I, this is the, this is a good uh, starting because I will be talking a little bit about castration. So this is kind of now, now to something completely different. Okay. So uh, so my point is that uh, I think it's absolutely not enough if uh, in response to these objections to the term phallus and phallic and the whole logic behind it, one says, no, no, but this has nothing to do, you know, with the organ or the, the phallus. This is just signifier and so on, because this clearly opens up the whole uh, other question or take, but why in this case, why call it phallic? I mean, what is the, the point to here? And uh, so I have uh, just like two, two pages, don't worry, uh, which kind of even uh, go dig into this or uh, it's not really defense of this. It's a kind of a, uh, attempt to point out w what I think is extremely precious um, point that is put on the table with this term. Okay, something like this. Uh, so, as you know, this famous phallic signifier, among other things, is also the, the signifier of the sexual difference, not a signifier of men, but for Lacan, a signifier of castration, which for him is this kind of universal function when it comes to speaking beings. If you speak, you are involved in it. Nobody escapes it. Um, and then the whole question of sexual difference is precisely how we relate to, to, the, to, to the castration and to the signifier of castration. So, okay, now you can say why, why is phallus, uh, which also refers to an anatomic organ, the universal signifier of castration of all things? Actually, my answer would be because one of the most salient features of this organ is precisely that it can also not be there. Uh, this is to say that phallus obtains its value of the signifier precisely against the background of its possible and easily perceptible absence. Or put even more, more bluntly, it is because roughly half of the human race doesn't have it as organ that this organ is elevated to the ranks of the signifier, to the rank of the universal precisely. I think there is no contradiction here uh, or discrimination which surely exists but doesn't start here. Uh, I think phallus is not a signifier because men have it and masculinity is some kind of naturally favored, but because women don't have it and this negativity, this non-immediacy, this cut precisely from the organic is constitutive of the signifying order. It is precisely once there is no continuity at all with the, that this something can be, becomes or can be elected the signifier. So, uh, and as I said before, the question of the sexual difference is then how one relates to this and how precisely, uh, f from this it follows from Lacan that women are there is no exception to being implied into the symbolic. The, the, the point is precisely not as in some uh, traditional, even feminist um, uh, visions or suggestions that women are kind of more 
closely connected to some organic kind uh, part of in themselves or nature and so on, whereas men are more in purely into the symbolic reason and so on. No, here the argument is precisely this uh, non-all of Lacan uh, relating to the feminine position. There is nothing that is outside here, but this is precisely what makes it not all. Okay, but I won't go into this. Uh, I will just ins insist a bit more on what is at stake in this term, phallic signifier. With phallus a signifier, the situation, I claim, is not that anatomy, that is an anatomical feature, is caught up in the symbolic order, but almost the opposite, the symbolic order is caught up in some anatomical contingency. Which makes it, yeah, we can say impure, this symbolic order. So for Lacan, to name this symbolic function phallic is, I think, to expose precisely the contingency at the heart of this symbolic order. Uh, this is, I think, what the critics who suggest to replace the signifier phallus with something else fails to see, something more neutral, as if this would then solve all our problems. And as I actually developed more extensively in the book on comedy, I think it would be very wrong to think that the so-called phallocentrism could be countered, countered simply by kind of politically correct restriction regarding the use of the term phallus, replacing it by something more neutral or even, as some suggest, by this kind of a, a complementarity of a, some proposed even uterus, uterus as the true or other signifier or something like this. I think this misses the, the real revolution, the real point, and the real subversive point that is being made here. Because it's more than clear that, from, hi from history, it's more than clear that phallocentrism can work splendidly and much better if phallus is not directly named, if nobody speaks of signifier as phallic, but remains veiled and reserved for mysteries. Uh, and one should also not forget that it was only with the advent of psychoanalysis that the whole talk about phallocentrism really took off in the first place. I think that in this sense, psychoanalysis first of all equipped us with the very terms we use in the critical thinking about all this. So by using the name phallic signifier, I think Lacan is very far from idealizing an anatomical peculiarity of men promoting it into a kind of ultimate reference of human reality, his gesture is, is actually exactly the opposite. On the very ground, where throughout centuries there existed only this signification of phallus, this cultural signification of phallus, the logic, the phallic logic, if you want, religious and other rituals and symboli symbolic practices in wrapping the mystery of man and dictating the hierarchical structures of the universe as emanating from this supreme mystery. On this very ground, steps Lacan and Freud before him to say, surprise, surprise, the mystery is nothing else but the phallus. The symbolic order hinges here on an anatomical peculiarity on contingency. And, and I really conclude here, Contingency is not the same as relativism. If all is relative, there is no contingency. Contingency means precisely that there is a heterogeneous, contingent element that strongly, that even absolutely decides the structure, the grammar of its necessity. 
it doesn't mean that this element doesn't really decide it or that we are not dealing with necessity. So to just abstractly assert and insist that the structure could have been also very different from what it is, I think it's not enough. Uh, this stance also implies that we could have simply decided otherwise and that this decision is directly in our power. But I think contingency is not in our power by definition, otherwise it wouldn't be contingency. And ignoring this, uh, like refusing to, 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 to think of this, leads to this kind of watered down liberal version of freedom where freedom is understood as simply freedom to choose. For instance, between different also, yeah, sexual identities, freedom to simply create ourselves and so on. But this, I think it's really bullshit. One has uh, it has very little to do with freedom because it doesn't even begin to touch the grammar of necessity which frames the choices that we have. It's not, it's always, the frame is always uh, absolute, we don't question it at all, and then we are satisfied to choose what is, it is there. So freedom is a matter of work and of struggle and of entering of new historical contingencies as well and not simply of choosing. So necessities can and do change, but not because they are not really necessities and merely matters of choice. So there is other, there are other fights to be fought probably. Okay, this is what I wanted to, to add. Thank you. Now I will. Uh, making this I don't know <laughs> we've got some time for questions um, I'm actually going to hog the mic first and uh, embarrassingly after such a, a very rigorous and very complex talk that you've just given I know this is a question that you get quite a lot this idea of sexuality as being somehow linked to an impasse in ontology, a kind of a fissure in being that's then mapped into an antagonism in the symbolic, as, as I understand what you're saying. Where does that leave us, or how do we get back to all of those practices and uh, th that we more readily associate with being sexual, the sort of sexual practices, sexual meanings, and so on, which which we are more readily going to think about as sexual, but also that most people are more readily going to think of Freud as having really said, you know, this idea that underlying everything, there's an implicit sexual meaning. So how do we get from what you're saying about sexuality to, to that? Uh, yeah, in a way, the way I see this is that uh, these two things are precisely related because although it is true that you have in Freud this hermeneutic also of sexual meaning, uh, and of uh, interpreting certain things as having sexual meaning, but at the same time you also have this uh, idea which is there uh, at the same time in Freud that actually uh, in some way the unconscious itself um, enjoys producing sexual meaning as an induendus. So it's not simply that there is this uh, that there is this kind of a 
proliferation of sexual meanings, which is itself related to uh, this kind of, let's say, ontological difficulty that I'm formulating or, or addressing. So, and in this sense, this proliferation of sexual meanings is itself symptomatic or, or points to, so they are not the ultimate truth. It's not to say that, okay, the ultimate ontological truth of this is simply sex. No, it is precisely, it averts us, it points the moment that there is this proliferation, it uh, should alert us to something uh, taking place there, going on or not taking place, which uh, is probably this real in this more in this sense of this uh, contradiction. So uh, it's not, uh, I, and I think clearly, and this is also why, to some extent, I think Foucault is absolutely right when he describes all this the, the way and not only Foucault, the way many critics uh, talk about this uh, exploitation of sexuality, also, you know, the, in this kind of watered-down version of, uh, of Freud, that everything is, it's uh, how it is involved precisely uh, in, uh, in this kind of a game of satisfaction, but and this is why I ended, or perhaps not really ended, but at some point I ended with this question of uh, satisfaction as being itself problematic, satisfaction, satisfaction of producing sexual meanings and so on is itself something that should be interrupted in some uh, in some sense that should uh, precisely not uh, have this kind of a smooth running because it is in this way that uh, perpetuation of this problem is precisely existing and not uh, um, being solved or liberated or whatever so uh, does this uh, uh, answer your question in that's great. We've got loads of time, so I'm sure there's lots of questions. Who wants to set the ball rolling? Um, hopefully I can organize my thoughts uh, succinctly. I'm, I was captured at the end of the book, what is sex? You, you discuss with this negative one, you discuss a suspension of the non-relation. <laughs> and um, I was surprised by that. And then you discuss that the problem of our time is um, that we, we can no longer name the real, almost as if like you experience this suspension of the non-relation and then there's no symbolic scaffolding to hold the real or something like that, whereas this used to be less problematic. And if you could connect that somehow to what you're saying with this yeah. uh, phallogocentrism and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a big question and it's a kind of a uh, difficult topic. It's not even so much related to the question of suspending of non-relation because this is, uh, it's uh, the question of naming. I uh, uh, introduce it at the end because uh, here again I think there is an interesting phenomenon that is going on that in uh, all this what is obvious proliferation of, of words, of discourses, of many places in which we can discuss uh, these things from social media to whatever, I mean there is this kind of absolute proliferation of words which we feel as such and which we are which we, which we feel saturated with very often in all this uh, chorus, there are very little words that work. As I yeah. uh, so, th th it is in with all this proliferation, uh, there seems something seems to be not really lost, but very rare. And this is precisely 
a word, a name that actually names, be it a, okay, a problem or something that actually names it in a way that reconfigures or even configures a situation in a way that we can confront it and uh, react to it, say something. And this, this is true both, I think, in politics, in uh, like personal, it is where we, we talk, we discuss, but then very rarely uh, we, uh, this capacity to name. So my, my point there is precisely that instead of, because there was this turn, that, so to say, against the, the language, the symbolic, blah, blah, the, all the blah, blah, which is obviously there, to the real to some kind of uh, realism which would uh, uh, bypass this uh, linguistic turn mm -hmm. and simply posit the real, the reality, and uh, start to work from there. And my point was that uh, perhaps what we lost uh, with this real is precisely uh, we lost the capacity to name. We didn't simply lose the real because the, the, the ones that you no longer... Has this have this capacity to formulate the the the, the, the impasse? The, the real has no way of being inscribed. I mean, in the sense of uh, not the real, the contradiction that I recognize as the real has no way of being inscribed in the space of which it is the contradiction. And I think this is very important that it gets inscribed because this so far is the only way we have to to to. Deal with it. So, and, uh, yeah. and you suggest you make the connection with uh, class struggle. Yeah, and yeah. That this, uh, of this yeah, I mean, and would uh, you say then sexual diff like that we should formulate sexual difference similar to how Marx formulates class struggle? Um, no, actually, yeah. The, the point here is okay. This was one example, obviously not a completely neutral one, uh, but uh, it is uh, one of these words, also concepts. Uh, but it's not only, uh, obviously it's a concept, but it's a word that kind of, the, the, once you in, invent, you possess the term class struggle, it's something, at least this is my, but not only mine understanding of Marx, this is not simply to say that there are different uh, classes and then there is struggle between them, but that the whole class society is actually uh, curved or um, um, uh, structured Precisely by what Marx calls the, the class struggle. So it's not uh, simply that you have these different elements in struggle between themselves, but uh, class struggle is what defines, what structures the very field in which these classes appear as struggling between themselves. And this, for me, yeah, this has a kind of a, a, a similarity to the, the way in which sexual difference uh, is conceived in, in uh, psychoanalysis, uh, but also I think it is something that uh, enabled a certain, certain social thought or philosophy or even political economy to kind of grasp a certain reality which was clearly there. There were struggles that people were able to see that there were, uh, were struggles, but the, the way it is that they're defined, I think it is a, it is a certain invention that enabled us and Marx uh, at the in the first place to uh, render uh, and quite important uh, the same reality which we were all looking at before in a slightly different way and to have something to to eventually work with if we side with uh, with this. So uh, this is the example that I uh, take. But yeah, the, there there are some other examples also in the book, also relation to the end of analysis and so on. But um, so there is, for me, there is an important proximity, this is clear, between th these two dimensions, the, the, this 
sexual contradiction and the, and the, and the political dimension. And uh, it's, uh, the book is very much informed by ways of trying to, um, uh, to articulate uh, them together, or the, 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 the why they are kind of articulated together. And uh, uh, as you know, there is this uh, scene that I refer to in the book from uh, uh, John Huston's movie, Freud, The Secret Passion, uh, which I think it's really significant. I mean, uh, uh, when, you know, you, for those who haven't read the book, there is this scene in the movie where Freud is uh, presenting his theory of infantile sexuality to this huge audience composed mostly or exclusively of men. Uh, and so he's talking about it and people get more and more, you know, uh, uh, upset because of it, so there is a whole riot. I mean, people really literally live massively, and when they are li- they are living, they spit on the floor at Freud's podium, and they go out, so there is this kind of huruk there. And then the, the chairman, like uh, presiding the session, says, oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, please, ca- please calm down. We are not in a political meeting. We are a scientific discussion. This is not, but I think this is quite of a telling scene because I think there is something that the the way the passions are uh, kind of brought in uh, in psychoanalysis and in uh, politics are not completely uh, dissimilar. So I I won't go into more in detail about this, but I think uh, yeah, there is a certain dimension which is not directly there, but I think which is kind of there is a certain even ontological connection between. Uh, the two, and this is also why it's not a coincidence that many times we these kind of things, even though they are they then become completely watered down, they kind of start expressing themselves uh, political claims also in terms of some kind of sexual demands or claims or liberations and stuff like this. So it's. Uh, Cheers, thanks so much for coming to talk with us. It's a real privilege to be able to hear you present. Um, you talk about the way that sexuality is kind of curved in your sense. And when I read chapters of the book, um, I was kind of struck by the idea that this curve could echo that inherent negative, that minus one, in terms of its shape. And the question that I came out with is, what might that have to do with kind of a Butlerian idea of performativity, more constructivist ideas of sexuality, is there a way that, through what you speak of, through iteration, the shape of the curve, the structure that sexuality takes because of its inherent negativity and the desire to fulfill that, what what scope can there be for performativity to render that curving societally understood? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you very much for the question. Yeah, I think there are perhaps um, different facets to this question. I, I think, like, uh, in general, uh, I think the, there is a certain, um, I mean, what exactly is, I mean, because precisely this kind of shaping is not something that is done by sheer act of will. Uh, I mean, for, for me, performativity usually starts from this idea that you have a more or less clear idea of what is wrong and where would you like the thing to move. And so you perform in a way that kind of um, 
get to there or at least uh, produce shapes that are more similar to, to your whatever landscape that you would like to, to see. Uh, and so, and, but here I think I'm, I'm not sure that the, the way I speak of how, uh, because based on this kind of fact of repression, enjoyment sticks to certain things that this in shapes a certain landscape, of the symbolic landscape in its own way, and also due to certain other contingencies, that this is something on which one can actually act by Simply building it. I mean, it's not. Uh, it's not how it happens. On it's more rather the opposite of how it happens. Uh, it's something that happens in spite of us, or in in ways that we cannot, uh, uh, yeah, directly uh, will will as such. So um, I'm not sure that one can be simply. Uh, although there is yeah this kind of a shaping, but I'm not sure that it can be simply performatively decided. Uh, otherwise, what can happen is more than if we just performatively decide or kind of rename, because there is a certain um, level, at least, of nominalism involved in this kind of uh, idea, is that if we simply rename things, uh, the problem will go away. Or uh, not only they will say that the problem will go away, and I'm kind of deeply skeptical to this. Okay, this is my Freudian BS. I think uh, it is, uh, okay, there are certain problems that can be solved, but I mean, I'm not saying that uh, there are certain, uh, there is a certain use of performativity that is, I think, very practically there and can be done. And so I'm not saying that there is no performative level. But I think here we are talking about things that, uh, to my sense, at least cannot be uh, reshaped simply by naming things um, uh, differently because I think even with these other names the uh, the impasse or this if you want to put it like this systemic violence is being reproduced but often in a much more um, um, subreptile manner in the face, in the sense that we uh, even no longer have means of grabbing this problem because we don't even have names to you know to, to, to name it so it's all these nice names that we have but the malaise is still there the problems are still there but so how will we name them we will just say okay but it's not enough let's invent some new names and so on so it's i don't think this is uh, uh, the the right way or the right way the the, the the best way or the, 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 the taken the two, the this reshaping can simply change the, the this, yeah. Hey, thank you. Um, obviously within uh, Lacan, there's a lot of um, overlap in terms of terminology with some Marxist concepts. Um, within Within Samuel Tomšić's book, uh, *The Capitalist Unconscious*, um, he sort of talks about the the identity between um, the signifying system and the logic of exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, how does how does surplus? Because obviously, within Marx, there's the idea of surplus mm-hmm. value, yeah, um, and the way that sort of interrupts and sort of is is the surplus of the logic of exchange. It, it's I, I think so. My my question is, what then would be the constitutive negativity of this logic of exchange? Yeah, I, I think you may have talked about it before in relation to Adam Smith and the invisible yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
yes, I think, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. Thank you. It's, I, it's actually, I mean, I just briefly, uh, Samo has this whole book on this, and it's, I mean, he goes into very many details uh, about this, but I think my, I just have this one chapter uh, where I think, uh, I mean, I kind of bring forward a couple of things. One is, okay, clearly Lacan, you, as you know, coined this term surplus enjoyment precisely on Marx's term. Uh, so there was for him a certain um, uh, proximity in, in the very logic. And I think this proximity uh, was precisely about this uh, kind of <coughs> negativity or non-direct relation, non-relation um, involved in both. So then there is, there is this uh, thing that um, I mentioned, which is the, the the whole idea of Adam Smith, which was the move, uh, this move from this kind of complete world into this uh, incomplete, uh, or like, let's say closed closed economy, economy in which if you want to um, have something more here, you have to take it somewhere somewhere else. So this economy, let's say, of relation, which could be relation of uh, hierarchy and oppression, but it's still this kind of uh, uh, regulated universe, so you take here, you put it there. And I think Adam Smith, and I think Marx also agrees here, is, was very right in saying that, but this is no longer true for capitalism. Uh, you can, there is a certain surplus that is being produced as if out of nothing, uh, and it's not simply directly taken there, and so the, the 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 world is becoming richer, and this the surplus is being accumulated out of precisely what seems to be what. Now, in Marx, you have this idea of labor and uh, so on, which is uh, which again I think has two uh, uh, very crucial dimensions, and one is one of them is precisely that you introduce this particular commodity, labor power, who, who unlike all other commodities which are on sale, as labor power is on sale, has this particular feature of being uh, functioning directly also as a source of new value. So it's not, uh, so there is this kind of short circuit, this kind of, uh, for me, uh, form precisely of this negativity when use value falls directly into Source of value, uh, different. So in, it's precisely this cut or this tipping over, which I think constitutes the very point of negativity out of which the surplus value is produced in this way of being supposedly autonomous, had nothing to do with uh, whatever. So that there is this endless exploitation that can be uh, uh, there. Uh, and Marx also has this very important point that, that actually uh, it is crucial that the worker is a free man selling this labor power because this is precisely how it is a commodity, but a specific kind of uh, miraculous commodity that uh, does much more than other commodities do. do. So, uh, so the freedom is a presupposition of this, and if we were just having to do with slaves, this wouldn't actually uh, work. You, you have to, yeah. So in this, I think it is somewhere in, in this point that I would situate the, this negativity, uh, this, this, this cut between, first of all, precisely between um, what Marx calls alienated labor, finally, that labor is not, it's something that it's a, a commodity that you have and not simply you, the part of you. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot.
thank you. Uh, my question is uh, regarding the difference or, let's say, a conflict maybe between drive and desire. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of related to your early work, uh, uh, the book on Kant, mm-hmm. where you kind of tried to think of the uh, ethics of the drive, let's say, and Kant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then it seems, um, maybe I'm projecting, but for a longer time it seemed that a lot of Lacanians were somehow privileging drive uh, over desire, um, in a sense that, you know, desire, of yeah, course, yeah. is always stuck with the other and the, in, in the symbolic, and somehow the drive is beyond, going beyond that. Um, but now your new analysis and your new book on the drive, let's say, um, because you locate the, that very gap um, around which a drive circulates in precisely the same spot where this kind of uh, surplus enjoyment is precisely kind of sticks to, then it seems that the drive actually has like a lot of, let's say, negative aspect, quite a negative aspect to the, say, the social. And uh, would you say that there should be some sort of return to the, to the logic of desire or... Because uh, I'm also kind of reflecting on the new book of uh, Samuel Tomczyk as well, where he talks about... Yeah, the, the, the last one, I haven't read it yet. I got it. I have it, but I have Yeah, because he talks about the drive as some sort of this point where mm-hmm. the, the, the inner uh, and then the social, it's a kind of... Because the drive for him mm-hmm. is not, I mean, uh, I've, I guess for Freud as well, it's not just something there in the biological yeah, or yeah. some inner, but it's kind of yeah. mediated already in the in the social, somehow, the, the form of enjoyment. So anyway, this uh, yeah. struggle between drive yeah. and desire. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's, uh, uh, I think to some extent I would uh, subscribe to both. I think there is something about the dimension of the drive which I would still say it's quite crucial also kind of uh, ontologically and, and politically and perhaps the, the the whole question of the dead drive and the, 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 the its logic is I think it's where it has a certain political value which is not to be uh, dismissed and which one has to even start with but it's true that uh, I know what I was kind of coming to uh, with with this book is this, that at the same time drive is not simply in itself some kind of a solution or i mean the 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 the, 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 very, the drive is a very we could say ambivalent thing which can drive many things finally it's not precisely because it doesn't care what way it gets the satisfaction so there is a certain uh, revolutionary uh, kind of logic in this you don't get at, uh, care at all so it's uh, in this indifference in this headlessness of drives um, but at the same time I think precisely because of this uh, drives sustain and drive and fuel many things that are that one works with both in the social space or I imagine in the in context of analysis when one nevertheless interrupt certain ways of satisfaction so it, it's so basically my idea was to say that it is the that, that it's not not simply kind of the, the the solution it's not the kind of open just opening up to the drives and the, but there this i relate this precisely to this question of the word that works which interrupts here precisely the certain kind of satisfaction and makes it kind of useless or impossible or redundant and by this Produces a certain shift, and you know, a certain uh, way for the subject to emerge or re-emerge, uh, yeah, out of the drives, but also, uh, yeah. So it is. This does open space, or perhaps open space. It never disappeared, but um, kind of refocuses a little bit more, perhaps again, to the, on the question of the desire, but and of the way it functions, you know, the way it is kind of uh, 
seen in a very suspicious way today, even more than all kinds of enjoyments and drives. I mean, one also, I mean, these things are never just abstract categories. So it's always useful to look in the way in which, in a certain uh, social context, uh, uh, it's all. They function, and I get suspicions every time. You know, if desire simply disappears from the, this kind of discourse, something is probably going on which should not be. Or should, so, uh, but yes, it's true that there has been this kind of uh, fluctuation between desire and drive. That uh, yeah, we've probably got time for one more question. I'll ask a question. Um, it's um, so in the book there are these two shifts. First of all, you sort of clear the ground by moving the discussion from a question of um, the morality of sexuality mm -hmm. to sexuality as an epistemological problem, mm -hmm. and then there's this other shift where you say that as an epistemological problem that implicates being, it's necessarily also a political problem. And along the way, there's a very interesting discussion of the difference between humans and animals. Um, and if I remember correctly, you put it like this, that um, sex, sex is not problematic for animals precisely because they don't know that it is problematic. So they, they lack the, mm. the, 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 the minus one that would inscribe it as problematic mm. within knowledge. Um, how can we think about this idea of there being a kind of ontological fissure in animals. Yeah, I think this is uh, one part of the book that is perhaps uh, uh, the most controversial, even among some Lacanians, because I really go yeah, into some kind of... Uh, I mean, I, I want to, at the same time, not simply to dismiss this distinction, obviously not between human and animals, but uh, to say that... Uh, uh, to introduce this possibility or this perspective that there is actually something to be said about that there is uh, uh, the way that there is this impossibility or this uh, difficulty or contradiction involved uh, in in being also in let's say if you want to put it in these naive terms uh, animal or even if you want vegetable things this is not uh, it's not a, the uh, I think I'm slightly suspicious to this notion that there is this uh, um, kingdom of animals and of other things that, that they live this harmonic whatever way and then it is the humanity which kind of denatural I mean obviously it denaturalizes this but the denaturalization does doesn't mean that nature is consistent in itself. And then with the introducer of culture, this is somehow lost. So uh, the, the, the argument there is, now I can, I mean, it's a complicated argument, but um, it's simply that perhaps we should uh, take, accept the, the contradiction as something that is there also in other terms, forms of their being, like in, in this sense of this kind of biological being. Uh, but that is structured differently in humans precisely because there is this redoubling of this impossibility, this inscription and this further, all these edifices that are built with this uh, signifier that we have of it. So it's, uh, or even that this, un un not even signifier, but, but because there is this unconscious precisely as a way of knowing that we don't know as opposed to 
not knowing that we don't know which, which could be kind of, uh, but this is not, my idea is simply that what do we know if animals are really satisfied when they have sex? We have this idea that they are, some, some that they are not, um, but we really don't know. So it's uh, uh, not, this is not the question to try to figure it out even by taking some brain scans. Do they really enjoy or not? I think it's, it's the wrong question. It's, uh, so, and the, this argument is more, uh, kind of the, the also argument against in this sense of human exception in the sense that I think we like retroactively constituted this animal with the big E to kind of distinguish ourselves from but at the same so my argument is simply this animal perhaps does not exist in this sense but clearly there is a difference between human world and animal world but it's not uh, uh, but some this kind of yeah com- completeness of nature or whatever it's a kind of a retroactive fantasy of uh, manhood now i'm afraid we are over time so that will have to be the last question thank you very much uh, yeah. Thank you and for coming.